Thank you for singing with me this morning. It is a great encouragement to gather together with God's people to sing His praises. Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 19. 2 Samuel, chapter 19, is where I want to direct your attention this morning. We're going to read, starting in verse 9, and we're going to read um, through the end of chapter 20. It's a long passage of Scripture that we're going to read in just a moment. Uh, remember, we don't shy away from reading long passages of Scripture. When we do that, it is the only perfect moment in our service when we are reading God's Word. So uh, we'll read it in a minute. We've been walking through this volume uh, that our Bibles divide into two parts. We've been walking through Samuel for uh, uh, over a year. We're almost finished. The story started with a barren woman who gave birth to a baby who became a prophet who anointed the first king of Israel, uh, Saul, who was... Not God's best for the kingdom. Then that same prophet Samuel anointed David the king. He received a great promise from God. He fell into adultery and murder. And uh, we've been following him through this great season of trouble. And now finally he has emerged victorious from a civil war. And he's going to go back into Jerusalem. That's all that's happened so far. Now we're going to start reading in verse 9 of 2 Samuel chapter 19. Verse 9. Throughout the tribes of Israel, all the people were arguing among themselves, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies. He's the one who rescued us from the hand of the Philistines. But now he's fled the country to escape from Absalom. And Absalom, whom we anointed to rule over us, has died in battle. So why do we say nothing about bringing the king back? King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priest. Ask the elders of Judah... Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his palace since what is being said throughout all Israel has reached the king at his quarters? You're my relatives, my own flesh and blood. So why should you be the last to bring the, back the king and say to Amasa, are you not my own flesh and blood? May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you are not the commander of my army for life in place of Joab. He won over the hearts of the men of Judah so that they were all of one mind. They sent word to the king, return, you and all your men, Then the king returned and went as far as the Jordan. Now as the men of Judah came to Gilgal to go out and meet the king and bring him across the Jordan, Shimei, son of Gera, the Benjamite from Baharim, hurried down with the men of Judah to meet King David. With him were a thousand Benjamites, along with Ziba, the steward of Saul's household, and his fifteen sons and twenty servants. They rushed to the Jordan where the king was. They crossed at the ford to take the king's household over and do whatever he wished. When Shimei, son of Gera, crossed the Jordan, he fell prostrate before the king and said to him, May my lord not hold me guilty. Do not remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. May the king put it out of his mind, for I, your servant, know that I have sinned. But today I have come here as the first from the tribes of Joseph to come down and meet my lord the king. Then Abishai, son of Zeruah, said, Shouldn't Shimei be put to death for this? He cursed the Lord's anointed, David replied. What does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruah? What right do you have to interfere? Should anyone be put to death in Israel today? Don't I know today that I am king in his, over Israel? So the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king promised him an oath. Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, also went down to meet the king. He had not taken care of his feet or trimmed his mustache or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. When he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him, Why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? He said, My lord, the king, 
Since I, your servant, am lame, I said, I will have my donkey saddled and will ride on it so I can go with the king. But Ziba, my servant, betrayed me. And he has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. My lord, the king, is like an angel of God, so do whatever you wish. All my grandfather's descendants deserve nothing but death for my lord, the king. But you gave your servant a place among those who eat at your table. So what right do I have to make any more appeals to the king? The king said to him, why say more? I order you and Ziba to divide the land. Mephibosheth said to the king, let him take everything now that my lord, the king, has returned home safely. Barzillai, the Gileadite, also came down from Rogalim to cross the Jordan with the king and sent him on his way from there. Now, Barzillai was very old, 80 years of age. I'll just pause there for a minute and say, if you're over 80, don't be offended. It is the Bible, though. Okay? This is the Bible. Very old. Very old. He had provided for the king during his stay in Mahanaim for Barzillai was a very wealthy man. The king said to Barzillai, cross over with me and stay with me in Jerusalem and I will provide for you. But Barzillai answered the king, how many more years will I live that I should go up to Jerusalem with the king? I'm now 80 years old. Can I tell the difference between what is enjoyable and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats and drinks? Can I still hear the voices of male and female singers? Why should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will cross over the Jordan with the king for a short distance. But why should the king reward me in this way? Let your servant return that I may die in my own town near the tomb of my father and mother. But here is your servant, Kimham. Let him cross over with my lord the king. Do for him whatever you wish. The king said, Kimham shall cross over with me and I will do for him whatever you wish and anything you desire for me I will do for you. So all the people crossed the Jordan and then the king crossed over. The king kissed Barzillai and bid him farewell and Barzillai returned to his home. Now when the king crossed over to Gilgal, Kimham crossed with him. All the troops of Judah and half the troops of Israel had taken the king over. Soon all the men of Israel were coming to the king and saying to him, Why did our brothers, the men of Judah, steal the king away and bring him and his household across the Jordan together with all his men? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, We did this because the king is closely related to us. Why are you angry about it? Have we eaten any of the king's provisions? Have we taken anything for ourselves? Then the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, so we have a greater claim on David than you have. Why then do you treat us with contempt? Weren't we the first to speak of bringing back the king? But the men of Judah repressed their claims even more forcefully than the men of Israel. Now a troublemaker named Sheba, son of Bichri, a Benjamite, happened to be there. He sounded the trumpet and shouted, We have no share in David, no part in Jesse's son. Every man to his tent, Israel. So all the men of Israel departed David to follow Sheba, son of Bichri. But the men of Judah stayed by their king all the way from the Jordan to Jerusalem. When David returned to his palace in Jerusalem, he took the ten concubines he had left to take care of the palace and put them in a house under guard. He provided for them, but he had no sexual relations with them. They were kept in confinement till the day of their death, living as widows. Then the king said to Amasa, Summon the men of Judah to come to me within three days and be here yourself. But when Amasa went to summon Judah, he took longer than the king had sent for him. David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do more, us more harm than Absalom did. Take your master's men and pursue him, or he will find fortified cities and escape from us. 
So Joab's men and the Carathites and the Pelthites and all the mighty warriors went out under the command of Abishai. They marched from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, son of Bichri. While they were at the great rock in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Joab was there. He was wearing his military tunic and strapped over it at his waist was a belt with a dagger in its sheath. As he stepped forward, it dropped out of its sheath. Joab said to Amasa, How are you, my brother? Then Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. Amasa was on a guard against the dagger in Joab's hand. Joab plunged it into his belly, and his intestines spilled out on the ground. Without being stabbed again, Amasa died. And Joab and his brother Abishai pursued Sheba, son of Bichri. One of Joab's men stood beside Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the middle of the road. And the men saw that all the troops came to a halt there. When he realized that everyone who came up to Amasa stopped, he dragged him from the road into a field and threw a garment over him. After Amasa had been removed from the road, everyone went on with Joab to pursue Sheba, son of Bichri. It's interesting how the text makes us stop there too. Amas is there dead, and the text tells us everybody stopped, and it, it tells a long story, and it makes us stop, halt too. It's there to make us think about Joab and what a scoundrel he is. This horrible person, his crimes are there evidently for everyone to see. We'll talk about that in, in a minute. Let's keep reading though. Verse 14. Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel Beth. Ma'aka, and throughout the entire region of the Bichrites who gathered together and followed him. All the troops with Joab came and besieged Sheba and Abel Beth Ma'aka. They built a siege ramp up to the city and it stood against the outer fortifications. While they were battering the wall to bring it down, a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen! Tell Joab to come here so I can speak to him. He went toward her and she asked, Are you Joab? I am, he answered. She said, listen to what your servant has to say. I'm listening, he said. She continued, long ago they used to say, get your answer at Abel. And that settled it. We are the peaceful and faithful in Israel. You're trying to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why do you want to swallow up the Lord's inheritance? Far be it for me, Joab replied. Far be it for me to swallow up or destroy. That is not the case. A man named Sheba, son of Bichri from the hill country of Ephraim, has lifted up his hand against the king, against David. Hand over this one man and I'll withdraw from the city. The woman said to Joab, his head will be thrown to you from the wall. Then the woman went to all the people with her wise advice and they cut off the head of Sheba, son of Bichri, and threw it to Joab. So he sounded the trumpet and his men dispersed from the city, each returning to his home, and Joab went back to the king in Israel. Joab was over Israel's entire army. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was over the Carathites and Pelethites. Adoniram was in charge of forced labor. Jehoshaphat, son of Ahilud, was recorder. Shiva was secretary. Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Ira the Jairite was David's priest. Well, you might find this hard to believe, but this is the end of the story of David as is recorded for us in the book of Samuel. Now, what's surprising about that, I know you're thinking that, that uh, this can't possibly be the end of David's story. We have three more chapters. Well, next time we're in 2 Samuel, I'm going to tell you that the, the, the last three chapters of Samuel kind of function as an epilogue. They're out of chronological order. So that this is the last thing that Samuel records about David. 
You might be surprised to know that this is the end that Samuel records too because David's uh, story is told in Kings. He dies in the next book, in the book of 1 Kings. But this is the end of the story according to Samuel. And I'm curious to know how you evaluate this end. Uh, is, this a, is this a good ending for David as, as the Bible and Samuel has told it? Um, it's an ending, I think, but it's an ending of ups and downs. I'm somewhat reluctant to admit this to you all this morning, but a few years ago, I watched the PBS series Downton Abbey. Uh, All six seasons I watched. I know I'm not alone in this room. Uh, In case you don't know, you don't need this information, Downton Abbey is the story of a a family, the members of the British aristocracy. It follows their life from the sinking of the Titanic to a period of time between uh, the world wars. Again, I'm embarrassed to admit this. It was basically a soap opera with better writing and costumes is what it was. So my least favorite part of the show was the last episode. Uh, During the final 60 minutes, there were no conflicts. There was no suspense. There were no troubles. Instead, it was scene after scene after scene of every character solving every problem that they had ever had. Broken marriages were healed, lonely people found partners, barren women gave birth, fortunes were saved, careers were secured, businesses were started, unicorns pranced across the screen as the television show was... Everyone lived happily ever after. It was so sweet that my teeth started to rot in my mouth as I was watching the end of the show. It was, it was unrealistic. No one's life works like that. This is a passage of scripture that uh, helps us understand that we who are followers of Jesus, we keep our eyes on two different ends. We keep our eyes on your end. There is your end, the end of your life as you know it on earth. And then there is God's end, the end in which God is going to fulfill all the promises that he has made to his people. Your life probably ends, your ends probably like David's does here, with ups and downs. Some of you will have more downs than ups. Some of you, you thought that your marriage would not have as many problems as it does because, you know, the person that you married was a Christian or or claimed to be a Christian, but she, he changed dramatically after you got married. It's not what you planned. Or or, uh, you never imagined, some of you, that your body would fail you as quickly and as much as it has. Uh, Some of you had great dreams about how your career, it was going to soar when you graduated from college or from high school, and instead your career is not soaring, it's just just sinking. Uh, Your end sometimes doesn't work out the way you planned it. It has more downs than ups. The reason that we who are followers of Jesus are not crushed by this is because we have our eyes not just set on our end, but on God's end too. And our focus on God's end is shaped by the promises that he has made. We're going to walk through this passage. We're not going to look at much of it in great detail this morning, but I want to walk with you and and, and help you see the ups and downs in David's life at the end. And I want to show you how the promises of God guided David's behavior, even in this midst of this not very happy ending. I want to do it because I want you to, I want to give you some perspective, perhaps, on the turns that your life 
is taking right now or has taken. So let's talk about the ups and downs at the end of David's reign. We're going to start by talking about the downs first. There's three of them, and then we're going to talk about the ups. And along the way, I hope to help you understand how this passage would apply. So let's start with the downs. And the first down that we're going to talk about in this chapter is that the nation is divided. The nation is divided. I don't know if you remember, do you remember that David, when he was crowned king for the first time, he was crowned in a city, Hebron, in Judah, that southern part of the nation of Israel, and he reigned there for seven years before the northern tribes, they're commonly known as Israel, the ten tribes up in the north, they were still following some of Saul's descendants and, and uh, his, his army leaders. and There was division there. And then eventually the Israelites came and they too crowned David as king of all of Israel. And now we see that division again somewhat in this chapter. It was, it was present, Absalom was supported mostly by people in the north and David was supported by people in the south. And, and now it's the Israelites in the north who want to bring David back. But they're hesitant to do so. And I understand why. David's army has just dealt a crushing blow to the Israelites. 20,000 of their brothers, their sons, their husbands are dead. David is the best king they've ever had, though. You can understand their hesitancy in whether or not they're going to bring David back. He's outside the land. Whether they're going to bring him back as, as king, they're hesitant about that. So David turns to the tribe of Judah, and he says to the elders of Judah, Why haven't you brought me back? I'm not sure that was a wise move on David's part. seems like what he's doing is making the division worse by appealing. You're my flesh and blood. You're, the, you're the, my relatives. Why don't you bring me? That doesn't seem like a wise thing. He tries to mend the division a little bit by, by bringing Amasa. Amasa was the general of the northern army. He wants to make him the commander of his army. David's trying to reach out a little bit there to the Israelites. Uh, but Amasa is not very competent, a general. The division persisted. Uh, look again here at verse 43. Um, actually, in uh, verse 41, the men of Israel come and they complain to the king. They complain to the king. But David himself doesn't answer them. The Judahites answer him. And verse 43 tells us that they were forceful. They were hostile in how they answered the men of Israel. Chapter 20 is about a, a rebellion that's led by this troublemaker named, named Sheba, more division in the kingdom. And, and what Sheba says is actually echoed in 1 Kings chapter 12, um, every man to his own tent, Israel. Here, the division is, is temporary, it's, it's going to end. In 1 Kings chapter 12, it's going to be decisive. And after 1 Kings chapter 12, there's two nations that we follow, God's people, Judah in the south, Israel in the north, but the seeds of that division were here. I don't think David did very much about it to help it, to, to bring that. He's, he's not a uniter. Seems to be a little bit more of a divider. This isn't the way that the reign of King David should end. Not the way we want it. A second down in this passage is Joab himself. Joab, this character. We've talked about Joab a lot uh, he is David's nephew. A few weeks ago, one of my daughters said to me, she said, you know, we've been reading this book for so long. I get so confused about who people are. Amnon, Absalom, Amasa, Abishai, they all have 
weird names. I, I get confused. Well, remember Joab. We talked about Joab a lot. Joab is one of David's nephews. He has two brothers, Azahel, who's dead, and Abishai. Um, I have referred to them a couple times as the Huey, Louie, and Dewey of the Old Testament, the nephews. And um, they're violent, they're hot-headed, they're vengeful men. Joab is a murderer. He, he killed Abner. Then he killed Absalom, and now he kills Amasa. It's interesting how he does this. Uh, um, this weird description of he's got his tunic on and his belt, and he drops the sword. We're not exactly sure. The Hebrew is not very clear. The best suggestion that we can think of is that Joab's sword accidentally, ac- accidentally fell, and he reaches out to greet Amasa because now Amasa can see uh, Joab doesn't have a sword, so he can, he can reach in for a great big, great big hug. And as Joab reaches to hug him, he also picks up his sword and plunges it in his belly, left-handed. There's another left-handed swordsman in the Bible, in the book of Judges. His name is Ehud. And there is a deliberate comparison here between Joab and Ehud. Ehud uses the sword in his left hand to stab someone to save his career Ehud had used his sword in his left hand to save the nation. See the difference between those two? Oh, Joab. The text also compares him to another king, another judge, sorry, named Abimelech. We won't talk about this too much, but Abimelech also led a bloody revolution. One of the reasons that this, this discussion with this wise woman is, is here is to compare Joab to Abimelech, and it's not a good comparison. You don't want to be on Abimelech's team. This is where Joab is. You can see how Joab's power is growing here. Verse 7, it says of chapter 20, Joab's men and the Carathites and Pelathites. Well, they're not Joab's men, they're David's men. And then in verse 11, uh, Joab's men, one of Joab's men stood beside Amasa and said, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. Well, David's name should be first. He's the king. Joab. Ooh, not good. Then there's this list at the end that I read at, at the end of chapter 20, all these names that I read fast enough to make you think that I know how to pronounce them. It says, it starts there in, in verse 23, Joab was over Israel's entire army. This is a second list like this in the book of Second Samuel. The first one is back in chapter 8. I'm going to read it. You don't need to. But in Second Samuel chapter 8, verse 15, It begins a list like this. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. Joab, son of Zeruah, was over the army. You notice in chapter 20, David's not listed like he is in chapter 8. Joab's first. Hmm. Joab is trouble. Uh, why, Why didn't David remove Joab from office? He tried once. He tried to put Amasa in charge, and then Joab killed him. You would think that would be definite. That's a, it is a treasonous act. He killed the, the king's general. You would think he would get rid of Joab at this point in time, but he didn't. Is he too weak? This is not the way we want David's story to end. Here's a third down in the passage, and it has to do with David's concubines. Verse 3 of chapter 20 tells us that when David finally got back to the palace in Jerusalem, tells us what he did. Now, 
when he, he makes his triumphal return, he comes back into the city. He's surrounded by all these people. There's this great, great uh, parade of people coming into town. What should they do next? Oh, they should have a feast. Maybe they should have another coronation. We're celebrating David's back. They should have, David should go into the uh, uh, tent where the ark is and he should worship God. Maybe he did those things, but none of them are recorded. The only thing Samuel tells us about is this terrible story with his concubines. Here, here's a group of women who did not live the life that they expected or hoped. Right? No little girl grows up dreaming of being a part of a harem. David had left them when he had fled from the city. He left them back there to take care of the palace. And while they were there, they were sexually used by David's son Absalom. And now they're going to live lives of cloistered widowhood. On the one hand, uh, David did prepare for them. He, he um, gave them a place to live and he, he paid for all of their expenses. You could imagine in this day a king returning like this and treating these women like trash, executing them or throwing them away. David doesn't do that at least. At least he's got that going for him. But their, their lives, they're going to have no more relationships with David or with anyone else. His return should have been a celebration. It should have been recorded as a celebration. But the story ends not with a bang but with a whimper. I wonder if this is how your story is going too. Your life isn't what you wanted. It's not what you expected. I, I think that's actually more normal than we want to admit it. That life ends with pain and weakness and despair. Now such an end strikes us for the same reason that it happened to David. David was a painfully flawed human being. We've made this connection over and over again between David's sin uh, back in chapter 11 and, and David's sorrow. We've made that point-to-point connection. You might think of your sorrows in more general terms. So there's uh, the, the problem of our rebellion against God in the world and then the, the, the result of sorrow. But the, the, the root, the, 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 we can't be as, as specific as in David, but, but the root of the disease is the same. There's a line that Naomi uses. Naomi was another woman who was outside of the land like David and, and came back. Uh, Naomi, her story is told in the book of Ruth. And uh, she and her husband during a famine and her sons leave their town. They leave uh, um, Israel and they go to live with the Moabites. And, and then eventually uh, Naomi comes back to her town in Bethlehem to, to live there. And it should have been celebration. Naomi's back. This is great. And, and Naomi, though, her husband and her sons have both died outside the land. And she comes back and she says this terrible thing. The Lord has brought me back empty. Anybody whose life feels empty this morning? Because the world is broken by sin, there's this degree of emptiness that we all experience. The Apostle John used a different word. He used the word darkness. We human beings have spurned the light, God himself, and so there is darkness. If this is the end even for David, why are you surprised that your life should be the way it is. It's not very encouraging, is it? A couple of weeks ago, Scott and Celia and I finished a book we were reading together. We uh, read books and we discuss them during our staff meetings and we were reading a book on parenting. 
I think I mentioned this in Sunday school or maybe at prayer meeting. I can't remember, but I was reading this parenting book at home one day and Luke saw me reading it and he said, you're reading a book on parenting? I said, yeah. And he said, oh, that's good. <laughs> so we're reading this book and one of my frustrations of reading this book is that the, the, uh, it was really helpful, it was really good, I'm glad we did it, it was challenging, I'm, I'm happy. But one of my frustrations was that um, at the, uh, how, how he shaped some of his chapters, the beginning of almost every chapter there was a mother or father who was uh, raising a little monster. And then this, little, this, this mother and father applied the principle in the chapter, and in 12 pages, miraculously, they had a little cherub all of a sudden emerged from their little hellion. It was, it was, we Christians talk like that sometimes, don't we, about life. Uh, marriage books work that way sometimes. Um, this is what pastor's conferences are sometimes like, books about church leadership, and sometimes this is what my sermons are like. You just need to apply this principle and, and, and your life, it will be grand. It will be wonderful. Uh, in a couple of weeks, this room's going to be filled on a Wednesday night with Awana clubbers who will bring their little wooden cars that they have made. It'll be our Grand Prix. It's a great night. Track goes down the aisle, and uh, it starts up here, and they vroom down to the end. And uh, uh, the, the little clubbers will bring their cars, and they'll, they'll put them on the top of the track, and they'll set them there. And there's a little pin in all four lanes that, that you set your car on, and it holds it up. And, and when it's time, they pull a chain, and the pins drop, and the car zoom down the, the track. It's, it's fun to watch. Uh, gravity does all the work there. It's beautiful. Sometimes we talk about Jesus, uh, following Jesus that way, that, that all you need to do is just, you just need to get that one impediment out of the way, and, and zoom, your life will take off. But in, the reality is that we live in a sin-broken world and following Jesus is a lot more like going up the track than zooming down the track. We need this constant wind of the Spirit to blow us along. Recognizing this should keep you from being a discouraged perfectionist. As if you expect everything to work out perfectly. That if you just get the right formula or the right principle, everything will be smooth sailing. Some of you are job perfectionists. Just get the right job, life will be grand. Some of you are church perfectionists. We had a friend in uh, Dallas, close friends, they change churches every five years. So uh, they, they, they go to a church, it takes them five years to get really involved in that church, and then when they get really involved, they figure out that the church is not as perfect as they thought it was when they first started going, so they leave that church and then find another perfect church. That lasts for five years, and then they find out what's wrong with it, and then they go somewhere else. We live in a sin-broken world. We're never going to get this perfectly right. Never. Followers of Jesus, because we know what sin is and what it does, we should be the most realistic people in the world. We should actually be more surprised when more things are going well than they are not. We're realistic, and yet we're still hopeful. How can that be? Let's talk about the ups in David's life for a few minutes, shall we? There's, there's two of them. 
And the reason that there are ups here in this passage at the end because, is because God is keeping the promises that he made to David. God keeps the promises he made to David, and David acts in accordance with these promises. David can't fix everything, but he can act in faith that God's promises are true and trustworthy. So there's two ups, and the most significant up in the passage is that David returns to Jerusalem. He's made it back. He was chased out of the city to the east, uh, out of the land even. Uh, David's exile here now in this passage is finally over. The war's over, and now he's back. He suffered terribly, but he's coming home. It's interesting that the text mentions Gilgal here. Gilgal was the same place at which Joshua crossed the Jordan land River in order to return to Israel. So David's return here is it's kind of like a new conquest of the land. He's, he's coming back. What God had told Nathan the prophet uh, is true. God has forgiven David for his sin. And God's going to keep the promises that he made all the way back in 2 Samuel. He had told David back in 2 Samuel 7 that there will be a son to come, that David's dynasty would continue, and that when one of David's sons would sin and rebel, God would discipline him, but he wouldn't abandon his plan. And that's happened to David. God has disciplined David, and it's the promise of God that's brought him back to the land, both to bless him and to forgive David, God keeps his promises, and David is so happy to be back in the land. This is such good news. Even after David had done these terrible things, God's keeping his promises to him. The second up in this passage is the three conversations that David has as he returns. Do you remember, I don't know if you remember a few weeks ago, when David fled the city, he had three conversations on his way out. He talked to Shimei, Mephibosheth, nope, sorry, not them, Ittai, Zadok, and Hushai. Now that he's coming back, he meets Shimei, Shimei, Mephibosheth, and Barzillai. You remember Shimei? Shimei, he's a scoundrel. So David is running for his life from the city, and he's got his wives and his children with him, and they're tired and, 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 and suffering um, Shimei stood across the ravine and was cursing him out and was throwing... I'm not sure what that is. Scott's, oh, it's a car. Somebody threw stones at a car, just like Shimei was throwing stones at David. He brought that back. It was good. Okay, so, so Shimei was cursing out David as he's leaving you, scoundrel, you murderer. And, 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 and Shimei comes and he pleads with David for forgiveness. So it says here in um, uh, verse uh, chapter 19, it says uh, verse uh, 20, I, your servant, know that I have sinned, but today I have come here as the first from the tribes of Joseph to come down and meet the Lord my king. So Shimei comes down and he boldly begs and pleads for forgiveness. Do you think Shimei's really sorry? Do you believe him? They used to tell us in seminary that you should be really careful about the people in the church who are friendliest to you at the first. Because mm. th- th- something might be going on there. Right? And Shimei, I'm the first one to come. And I'm so sorry. Do you think Shimei's being honest? I don't know. But uh, verse 23 says... Um, So the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king promised him an oath. David forgives him. 
Now, why did David forgive Shimei? Why did he do that? Well, I have three suggestions here. Well, number one, I think maybe David forgave Shimei because Shimei had brought a thousand troops with him. Uh, it's a rule of life I try to follow. Don't pick fights with people surrounded by a thousand soldiers. Okay? So maybe that's going on. That's cynical. The second reason, maybe David is signaling, signaling by forgiving Shimei, maybe he's signaling to the, oh, the whole nation of Israel, anybody who rebelled against him, I will forgive Shimei and I'll forgive anybody who wants to come back. There is forgiveness for anybody who has been in rebellion. You can come back and I, the king, will forgive you. But actually, in verse 22, uh, 22 we have a third reason, I think, why he forgives Shimei. He says right at the end of verse 22, I'm the king over Israel. I'm king over Israel. In other words, God has kept the promises that he made to me and he is restoring me to the throne. And because of the blessings that I have received from God and I know that God is on my side, I can be magnanimous to Shimei. In light of all that God has done for me, um, uh, in light of all the, the resource, uh, of all the, the generosity that God has given to David, David can afford to be generous to others. That's not unlike the logic of 1 John 4.11, is it? Where it says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The grace that we give to other people is always the overflow of God's grace that we experience. And I pause here for a minute. Some of you in this room, I know, brothers and sisters, I know that some of you, your life is cast in a certain way and you have many reasons to be discouraged. On Thursday night, uh, the elders met and we prayed. We prayed for you on Thursday night because we know some of the stories that you are experiencing right now. It's a great privilege. I told the men this just offhandedly while we were discussing. It is a great privilege to serve uh, with a group of men in the church. Uh, we spend a lot of time when we meet together praying and asking God to show his kindness to those of you who are going through difficult times. Well, we were praying, and, and for some of you, you have reasons to be discouraged, to withdraw, to, to, to do nothing. But there are some of you who are, have reasons to do, withdraw, and, and you're not. You're reaching out, and you're serving other people, and you're caring for them and trying to encourage them. You are acting in accordance with the promises that God has made that he will be with you. David lost his son Absalom. He's coming home in grief. He's coming home to a shattered kingdom, but he's still extending mercy to Shimei because God's promises, not David's grief, are controlling David's behavior at this point in time. Now then we have David's conversation with Mephibosheth. Do you remember Mephibosheth? Huh. Mephibosheth is lame, the text says. He's the son, not lame like in the teenager sense, but like lame in the hospital sense. So uh, he, 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 David has been taking care of Mephibosheth. He's been living in, at David's house. And when David fled, Mephibosheth didn't go and, and with him. And, and Mephibosheth's servant Ziba had told David that Mephibosheth had turned on him. And Mephibosheth denies it. So what, what's David supposed to do? On the one hand, Ziba has helped David. So Ziba deserves a reward for helping him. But... but, but he seems like maybe he lied, but maybe Mephibosheth is lying right now. So he doesn't know quite what to do. So he makes a decision where he divides Mephibosheth's land and gives half to Ziba and half to Mephibosheth. This is likely a test. I think this is a test. 
How is Mephibosheth going to respond when he loses all his wealth? Well, what he said, he passes the test. He says, I don't care. Let him have everything. I know that you're safe. It reminds me, I mentioned this before, I'm sure. It reminds me of Solomon who made a decision about whether or not to cut a baby in half. And the real mother, when the time came to cut the baby in half, the real mother said, oh, no, 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 give her the baby. Mephibosheth uh, says, oh, no, 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 he can have this state. I don't care as long as you're safe, right? David is returning not just as a king, but as a good and wise judge, because that's what a king is supposed to do. I think that's part of the conversation that he has uh, result of the conversation with Barzillai. Barzillai had helped support David when he's on the run. David wants to invite him back to the palace. And notice how Barzillai says that he's unqualified. He's not qualified to be in the palace. I'm too old. I can't taste good food from bad food. I can't hear good music from bad music. Um, I can't tell joy from sorrow. I'm just too old to be discerning. And if you're going to be in the palace, you have to be able to make decisions about right and wrong. And David had just done that. He's, he's returning as king, and now he's acting like king. There are ups and downs in this passage. What keeps David going, what keeps him moving forward, is the promises of God. God's word is true, and David is moving forward. Now let's step back and finish, as, as we finish this morning, and think about these chapters in relationship to the whole book of 2 Samuel. One of the key questions in the book of Samuel is, what sort of king do God's people need? What sort of king do we need? And uh, do God's people need? It, it's not really the king that human beings usually imagine. If we human beings built a king, we'd get Saul. That's no good. We need a king after God's own heart. Enter David. But even the great David fails. But it's God's promises to David that make us look, make us look as readers beyond this chapter. This is the end for David, but it is not the end for God's promises. We know that as readers of the Bible. We know the rest of the story. God told David there would be a son. The promise is still active. So we look towards the end of David's, beyond the end of David's story, for the son to come. Today's Palm Sunday. And we remember how the Lord Jesus entered Jerusalem, surrounded by a crowd, just like David. The Lord Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. It was a royal moment. It was the moment in which uh, God says to Israel, here's your king, and they would not have him. When David returned, he had to deal with the concubines. It's worse for the Lord Jesus. When the Lord Jesus rode into Jerusalem, there was a coronation, but he was crowned with thorns. There was a feast, but it was one in which he spoke about his body being broken and his blood being shed. There was an enthronement for the son of David who rode into Jerusalem, but it was an enthronement on a, cr- on a cross. He was laid in a tomb. He rose from it three days later. All those who are his followers look to him as the one who conquered sin and death. He's the one who died the death we deserved to die because of our rebellion against God. David's son emerges from the tomb and we anticipate the day when his eternal rule on earth will commence. Brothers and sisters, regardless of the circumstances of your life, of how it's ending, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is not the end. God said so. The guarantee of it is his risen son. I wonder, has that changed the way that you see your world? 
to change your perspective on how you understand what's happening to you right now, the downs and the ups that are in your life. The end, but not the end. I occasionally watch another television show on uh, PBS. It's a mystery series. It features a, a young Anglican vicar. He's a pastor. He solves crimes in his spare time. That, that's, it's very realistic. That's what I do in my spare time. So, Every, every sermon every sermon ends with uh, a, a, sorry, every episode of this television show ends with a snippet of a sermon. Usually it's sentimental claptrap. It's terrible preaching. I, uh, so I watched an episode recently. There was a, a funeral, funeral sermon. And the vicar stood up there in his big robes and he said, This young man who died lived life to the full. He recognized that we only get one chance and he cast off all restraints and he really lived his one shot. It's the worst funeral sermon I have ever heard. If this life is our only chance, if this is the only time you will ever in your life experience peace or happiness or solace, or satisfaction, if this is all we have, we are pitiful people. But there are two endings. There's your ending, and there's God's ending. There is David's end, and then there's the end that God has promised through David's great son. What keeps us focused on God's ending, and living in the ending that we have, is the promises that God has made to us. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to you that you fulfilled your promises to David. Oh, how he suffered. He suffered because of his own sin. And we are those who suffer in this world because of our unrighteousness and the sin that infects this world. Lord, we we read in Romans about how creation groans under the weight of our sin. And we are groaning people too. Lord, we thank you, though, that this life is not the end. It's an end, but it's not the end. Father, I do pray that you would grace us with the realism that comes from recognizing the consequences of sin. That we would receive from you every moment of blessing and gladness as a sign of your grace and that it would cause us to rejoice. And that we would see the groaning, the sorrow, the pain that we experience and recognize it's the consequence of this sin-broken world. A sin-broken world that the Lord Jesus came to repair Father, we thank you. Next Sunday when we gather, we'll we'll celebrate in a particular way that it is a new day because the Lord is risen. Oh, happened a long time ago, but we'll, we'll celebrate it again significantly next week. Help us to fix our eyes through the lens of the promises of God on that great end that is to come. Keep us from discouragement from being downcast and in despair because as our children saying, Christ is alive and you're the promise-keeping God. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus saying, Amen.